The Athletic. Totally football show today. Real Madrid. They beat Man City. They beat Man City with Rodrigo. But how did Real beat Man City? We don't know, but we're still going to talk about it anyway. Plus another game that left you and I bamboozled, Real against Liverpool. We've got takes so hot they could warm pensioners for entire weeks. Plus trouble at Chelsea Cottages and Cherries back in the Premier League and more in this Totally Football show in association with Paddy Power. It's Carvajal's cross. Rodrigo! Oh, extraordinary! They prayed for miracles, and miracles arrived! Real Madrid, the team of dreams! Where has that come from? How did that happen? Bedlam! Which game was that? <laughs> <laughs> Peter Drury there. For everyone who, like Danny Jameson, was wondering how he, the master, would deal with two of the most extraordinary bits of uh, Champions League action we've seen in many a year. Duncan Alexander is with us on this, the 5th of May, a Thursday. Also here, Adrian Clark. Hello, Adrian. Hello. And also Michael Cox. All right, Michael. Hi, James. Mm, hi to you all. All right, headline this morning in Marca in Madrid. Que baja Dios y lo explique. Let God come down and explain that. Adrian Duncan and Michael, you'll have to stand in for kind of the universal force of balance, etc. But before we get into, you know, what happened, just one of the all-time greatest comebacks ever. Up there with uh, City against Gillingham in the playoff final. It was spectacular, wasn't it? I, I just, I just think over the two legs, they were they were so inferior, Real Madrid to Manchester City that that it, it is criminal of, of Pep Guardiola's side not not to progress. I mean, you can laud the heart and the belief and the resilience of, of Real Madrid, and, and we should and we will. But that is, they've gifted that. To, to the Spaniards, no doubt about it. But it, but it was a, it, it made for an amazing cup tie, um, and we might not get those two-legged Champions League semi-finals moving forward, might we? So um, yeah, we've got to treasure them mm. while they still exist. All right. I mean, you're referring to this this plan, and at the moment, it is still very much a notion to do the semi-finals and final in a week in a venue. It might be that then the quarterfinals get to be every bit as exciting as these semi-finals have been. I don't know. But in the meantime, yes, uh, Marker continuing the greatest night in the history of the Bernabeu. They will study this in the universities, says Marker, and they probably will. I'm sure they will. There's also a lovely little sidebar called Worst Decision of His Life with an interview with a fan. Sat, I don't know why I'm laughing. He sat outside on a curb outside the Bernabeu. <laughs> he left... 80 minutes into the game, and they wouldn't let him back in. He says, 24 years I've been a season ticket holder, but he, he should have known better. He should have known better because they're always doing this, Real Madrid. Michael, how much did you enjoy Wednesday night? Enjoyed it for many reasons, yeah. Particularly, I've I got to say, I, I, it really annoys me when fans leave games early. So I'm delighted to hear that story. Mm. I, I, I did it once. My dad made me leave a, a Fulham... Luton game I think early in about 1998 and we missed a consolation goal it was 3-1 completely irrelevant and that was in the days before everything was on TV so I just never saw this goal and because of that I've never left a game early since um but yeah the, the game was I just didn't see the comeback coming I mean I really even by the standards of the Champions League semi-finals even by the standards of Real Madrid it was extraordinary because they'd created nothing really in the second half aside from that very early chance when Carvajal cross for Vinicius in the first 20 seconds of the second half. I thought City pretty much did everything well. I mean, I thought people are kind of pointing fingers at Guardiola and his substitutions, but I mean, the Gundogan change that kind of created the goal. Mm. Grealish on down the left. I mean, he twice nearly made it 6-3. I mean, that's what the scoreline would have been had he scored 6-3. And even bringing on Fernandinho to defend the box made sense. They just, they couldn't quite do it. Everything went Real Madrid's way. And, um, 
Yeah, like you say, one of the most extraordinary comebacks I've seen. 89 minutes administered perfectly by Man City, followed by the sound of the entire Bernabeu press box tearing up their match reports. I should say, I feel the same way you do about fans leaving early with podcasts. You know, leave a podcast early. There's no telling what nuggets mm. or gems of consolation you might might miss out on, never to discover again. Something to think about. Anyway, all right. Well, you mentioned Guardiola and his substitutions. I'm sure we'll be talking about that. We should also salute Carlo Ancelotti, who becomes the first ever manager to reach five Champions League finals. Three of them will be against Liverpool. Pep's now the manager who's lost the most semi-finals. Uh, so Real didn't have a shot on target, I think, prior to Rodrigo's first goal in the 89th and a half minute. What what happened? Well, the, from where I was sitting, it it looked like Manchester City were a team that that got caught in the headlights. You know, it was it was they switched off for the equaliser, and and from that moment on, the stadium believed that Real Madrid could come back, and so did the Real Madrid players. And I, and I just sensed that City feared it too. I don't think they that they believed in themselves to to shut down the game, and it, it, defenders started making. Poor decisions. There was a bad piece of marking from Laporte um, for Rodrigo. It was a brilliant header. It was a fantastic cross, a wonderful header. But I thought the marking from Laporte was was sloppy for a player of his quality. And and then obviously an extra time, Diaz makes a daft decision. You, you you can't you don't make those kind of decisions if your head isn't frazzled. And I just felt that that City's City as a as a group, particularly the defensive players, were mentally all over the place uh, at the climax of that game and and it and it's cost them and has been a pattern hasn't it i mean you look at all of their a lot of their champions league exits they, there seems to be flurries of goals against them um it's something they need to need to work on i think we also have to remember that even for the best footballers on the planet these are the biggest games you'll ever play and mm. you look at the you know barcelona against liverpool a few years ago bayern against united in in 99 in matches that intense, once it starts going wrong, it can quickly just, you know, gather pace. And, and mm. we saw that. I mean, I think if Kyle Walker had, had stayed fit for the whole game, it might have been better for City. Um, obviously, I think the refereeing was slightly, you know... <laughs> I mean, Casemiro should have probably got at least three or four yellows. Um, <laughs> the ref blew up three minutes of added time in the yeah. second period of extra time and he blew up on two minutes 50. The ball was in play for around about 14 or 15 minutes for the whole of extra time. I mean, wow. it's funny, on the on the BT highlights, um, it ends, basically it goes from the, the Foden header, uh, Fernandinho chance at the back post at the end of the first half straight to the full-time whistle because that just explains what happened in the second period of extra time. Madrid did an incredible job of, of killing, that, mm. killing that game then and City didn't really you know, create much and, and, and that would, would have been a disappointment. But it's just, it's the Champions League semi-finals. It's, as we're saying, it's it's as good as it gets. And um, yeah, this is just another one to add to the to the long list. Games this big, goals can come in flurries. And Carlo's been on the receiving end of that, of course, in, in Istanbul. But this season, 2-0 down on aggregate to Paris Saint-Germain with 30 minutes to remain. They get through that one. 4-3 down to Chelsea with 10 minutes left of the second leg and they get through that one. And then... On three occasions, they were two goals down to City, and through they go. Well, they trailed from they trailed from the second minute of the first leg to the ninetieth minute of the second leg, and yet are still through. I mean, the, this is a slightly indulgent comparison, but I, the only campaign I can ever recall seeing like this was when Wickham got to the semi-finals of the FA Cup in two thousand and one, where they every game they should have gone out and they somehow pulled it round, and and that. Run ended with a two-one defeat to Liverpool. So you know that's the one that they mentioned in Marker same. as well on on Thursday morning. So yeah, that <laughs> that's in the old High Wycombe studies of Madrid University side <laughs> panel. I think. Yeah. Adrian, you said it was criminal for Man City not to qualify for the final, but we should hail the genius, the obscure genius for many people of Carlo Ancelotti, mm-hmm. and and how he's managed to pull this off and reach a fifth. Final, Michael. He's not. He's not hailed as one of his generation's great tacticians. Is part of the genius. Is part of what genius he has. The fact that it's never about him. Even last night, it didn't. Didn't see. He wasn't the story. Should he be? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're spot on with that. He's always been a manager who. Well, no, actually, not always been a manager. 
since he kind of did his big change in the late 90s when he was kind of inspired by Zidane, he's always since then been a, a manager who bases his sides around the players. And I think the thing that struck me last night was how calm he was. Everything that happened, he remained almost unflappable on the sidelines. And I think that when you look at his decision-making, even though there was a bit of luck and a bit of, you know, the game was out of control by the end, he did make the right decisions. He didn't gamble too early. He took until 67 minutes before he opened up the game. I think if that was a basketball game for 45 minutes or 90 minutes, Manchester City would have won. But he, he waited until the right moments, really, before he essentially put on all his attacking players. He completely sacrificed his usual midfield three and went with Camavinga and Valverde, who were the most mobile two. And, I mean, I just think both managers actually got the changes right. I think they basically feel they did everything they could. And at the end of the day, the, the game is shaped by the managers and it's decided by the players. And mm. it came down to, you know, few individual contributions here. Ancelotti's got a knack, hasn't he, of sort of empowering world-class players. He, he's worked with so many... So many unbelievable talents and they, they seem to, yeah, without having to sort of overload them with, with tactical ideas, uh, you know, complicated frameworks, he, he does get the best out of them. I, I do agree with Michael. I think, I think he played it, played it right. And that calmness definitely emanates to the players on the pitch. It, it's such a contrast, isn't it? You, you feel as if Real Madrid are, are, are quite relaxed, not, not overloaded with information, whereas Pep wants to micromanage every situation. And, Manchester City are a better team than Real Madrid. But when they're in the heat of the moment, when when everything around you is going a little bit crazy, maybe that karma style is, is, is more suitable. I don't know. Michael, you were saying that you felt Pep made the right substitutions. He probably would have spent the night going over what he could have done, what he should have done. What, what do you think he might have come up with? I don't know, really. I think the only substitution that didn't work out for Manchester City was the one that was enforced because uh, when Walker went off, Cancelo had to switch sides. Zinchenko came on, and I always feel Zinchenko's not really the best defender. And Raul got a lot of joy down that flank, pushing Carvajal forward. So like I say, I'm not really sure they could have done much much different. I think mm. uh, the substitutions make, made sense, and it was just one of those things. Do, do, you, do you think the substitution of De Bruyne made sense? Because for me, De Bruyne's been absolutely brilliant of late. He's been... Stella. I think Bernardo Silva was, was was probably the pick of the bunch in this game. But De Bruyne has just been so good in so many big matches of late. I just think if he, unless he's injured, you keep him on. I didn't think he played that well last night. No, no, he wasn't his greatest night. But it's De Bruyne, and I think that he he, he has been in in terrific form. I, I just thought I thought it was a mistake. He goes under the radar slightly as a bit of a... Like, of all players to score 50 or more Premier League goals, he's got the highest proportion of goals scored at home. And I think he is brilliant at the Etihad, but I can see why he was substituted last night. I think in away games, he, he sometimes... He just seemed slightly... There was a couple of misplaced passes in the second half, a couple of sort of decisions that, you know, you can imagine him making much better ones in a, in a different game. So I, I didn't think that was a, a radical move. Yeah, I... I mean, Guardiola can't really have expected the game to have changed quite so dramatically. I mean, they went from kind of preserving a lead to desperately trying to get back in the tie. And I, I do wonder, I mean, last night was an interesting example of games these days that are influenced by the fact there's so many substitutions. And I'm kind of against five substitutes for various reasons. But one of them is, I tend to think it allows the manager too much control. I quite like the fact that they were only allowed to tinker kind of three times with it. When it's five and six, it feels like they've got too much control. But I suppose there's an, another argument you can make in that actually once so many players come onto the pitch fresh like that, actually the managers don't have any control. It's kind of like a playground game. It's kind of back and forth. And I do wonder, I mean, in relation to the De Bruyne thing, now that there's so much freedom with the substitutions managers are allowed, I wonder whether the next thing will be that actually you're allowed to bring players back on after they've been substituted off? Because I think City would have done that with De Bruyne, wouldn't they? There was, yeah. a, there was a point where they didn't, they didn't need him. But as soon as it went into extra time and you were thinking, who's really going to grab the game by the scruff of the neck? I think De Bruyne would have taken his tracksuit top off and right. been wheeled back out. A, a bit like Carl Walker did actually during the game, no? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. My last ever appearance in, in the red and white of Arsenal was in a charity game <laughs> at Barnet. And it was a, a rolling subs type affair. And I came, I played in the first <laughs> half, came off. And then in midway through the second half, I said, Clarky, get yourself back on. And it was uh, a throw in. And they said, go on, just, just go on. And from the throw in, the guy hooked the ball up the line for me to chase. In said chase, I pulled my hamstring and never played again. <laughs> so maybe it's not the best. It's, but I was probably, I probably was around 40 at, at the time. Mm. So uh, <laughs> Kevin Kevin might have got away with it a little bit more than me. But uh, yeah, that is, that is the danger. They definitely would I have I wonder if you thought that last night, sat on the bench, like, I uh, <laughs> would like to get back out there, but I don't want to do an Adrian Clark at Underhill. So, uh... <laughs> it was so embarrassing. Yeah, it was, it was right in front of, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, yeah, quite hum- humbling experience but <laughs> no I, I I get it I get it and, and I'm with Michael totally about the three sub thing hmm. uh, yeah, I, I think he made that point really well and yeah I'm, I'm fully behind that it helped Real Madrid didn't it because what they did they were able to effectively change their entire midfield and other bits and, and that midfield was very youthful towards the end of the game and you could see the mobility that the, 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 they were able to travel up the pitch with the ball at their feet like they weren't earlier on in the game as, as City tied. Camavinga was brilliant at it, wasn't he? So, yeah, it gave Ancelotti a licence to really regenerate his team on the night and, and it worked for them. But for me, three is better. Mm. We, we've touched on some of the, the key incidents. After Mahrez's goal, which looked like it had settled things, then that incredible moment when Jack Grealish could have put them two up on the night. I'm still not sure how Mendy clears that. That it makes that goal line clearance, and then you get well, it goes to extra time, and then you have the the penalty. I was convinced that Benzema, who had a dismal record from the spot prior to that Panenka last week, would would miss this time round. Spanish comms didn't sound too calm either. How would you feel if you were a Liverpool supporter Thursday morning? On one hand, the chance, as Mo Salah mentioned, for revenge for 2018. On the other, though, this team have a charmed life. I'd I'd be delighted if I was a Liverpool fan, to be honest. I, I know that they've just beaten Manchester City, but I think Real Madrid are far inferior to them. And uh, yeah, there's always going to be a danger of them pulling out. I mean, I haven't expected Real Madrid to get through any of the three rounds up to this point. (laughs) I think I've seen them win six European Cups. And in none of those finals did I think they would win. So, I mean, there's no point really making predictions, but I don't think Real Madrid (laughs) will win this either. Mm, Which sounds like a prediction in itself. Colin Miller pointing out that since 2001... Spanish teams have played non-Spanish teams 16 times in European finals and they've won all of them, all 16. Woo. It's quite surprising to see Mo Salah being so kind of bullish about this. It doesn't, it's not really fits into his, um, his you know, usual uh, persona. So, But that, that moment with Ramos has clearly burned on, as, as you'd expect it to, for, for, you know, through all these years of success. Yeah, I mean... That game remains one of the most bizarre uh, Champions League finals. I actually watched that game in Italy on holiday, and um, I, can't, I don't know why, but the the coverage had no commentator, so it was just crowd noise, which was kind of good, but also was quite confusing as well. So when like all the Loris Carrier stuff, I I was I didn't know what was going on because you know I didn't I hadn't heard that. I mean, I know he'd got injured, but I didn't. You know, the commentators would have obviously been saying about concussion, etc. So, yeah, it was um, it was a very strange final that. Mm. But clean audio is an option for most digital sports networks yeah. in civilized countries. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Ramos will probably be there, right? He must live down mm. the road from the final now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, it was extraordinary again. We could have been sat here talking about a completely different scoreline, but there it is. Uh, Real Madrid are through to face Liverpool in the Champions League final and Pep Guardiola 
has lost another semi-final crikey. Before we move on to what Liverpool got up to on Tuesday, which was quite entertaining as well, do you think this is going to impact at all on Manchester City's Premier League campaign? They've got Newcastle coming up at the weekend. Players tired, I imagine. Uh, Carl Walker's not going to feature, I'd also imagine. Yeah, I think that's a blow, isn't it? It was a gamble. He, he admitted it ahead of kickoff that, that he was rolling the dice on, on Carl Walker. And, and yeah, you think about the weekend, Carl Walker up against Sam Maximan. It's a matchup that he would have been confident uh, in, but now they they need to, to, to swap things around. I, I think there could be collateral damage, obviously mentally, from the blow. It should focus their minds, really, shouldn't it? It should make them even more determined to, to, to not blow the season entirely. Um, I think they'll be okay. I don't think it would derail them, but there is that danger. And and you know, other teams will 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 maybe smell blood a little bit more and, and just say, mm. look, if you, if you can if you can put the ball into their box, if you can actually get some kind of territory against Manchester City and test this defence, cracks do appear. Yeah, I'm not sure that there was a formula there for 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 uh, for say Newcastle to to follow, but I, I guess we'll find out. They're playing Sunday. 4.30, by which time they may well be... They have a great record, by the way, against uh, Newcastle at home. They won the last 12 fixtures in this series. Um, they may well be two points by because Liverpool have got Spurs Saturday evening. And equally, Liverpool have a pretty good record against them. We'll, we'll talk about Liverpool next. Manchester City hearts were broken in the Bernabeu late on Wednesday night as Real Madrid performed a Houdini escape to bring the game to extra time and then managed to perform the knockout blow to City via the penalty spot and Karim Benzema. City and Pep will need a few days to regroup, that's for sure. And the focus will now go on Liverpool in the title race who face Antonio Conte's fourth place chasing Spurs at Anfield on Saturday night. In terms of the title race, betting will Man City are 4-9 the favourites and Liverpool are 7-4. One point separates them with four games to go each. Get the popcorn out. Liverpool are winning games for fun at the moment and could be about to do something really special in terms of a treble or a quadruple season under Klopp. They are the favourites against Spurs at a price of 2-5. The draw is 15-4 and the away win is 11-2. Remember, next up for Spurs after this is Arsenal on Thursday in a North London derby that could be a battle to the death in terms of that last highly coveted Champions League spot. So it's a massive couple of days for Tottenham and Conte. Spurs are 17-10 for a top four finish, while the Gunners are 2-5. Then on Sunday, Man City will play host to Newcastle and will be hoping to feel no ill effects from their midweek Champions League trauma in Madrid. They'll be looking to be all business-like and are 1-7 to to win the game. The draw is 13-2 and the Magpies win is 14-1. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or indeed the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s. T's and C's apply. BeGambleAware.org. And remember, take time to think. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. All right, 24 hours before the Bernabeu Bedlam, there was a mad match too at the Ceramica. To recap, Liverpool came into the tie with Villarreal 2-0 up against a side that hadn't managed a single shot on target in the first leg and had been described as a disgrace to the competition. They probably <laughs> went 2-0 down, did Liverpool. But then recovered to win in the second half, 3-2 on the night, 5-2 on aggregate. Did you see the tweet from Arsenal fan Partey Time, Partey Time, who at half-time with Liverpool 2-0 down wrote, if I remember anything about Emery, it's that he'll shut up shop now and Liverpool will score three. Boom. <laughs> Is that what happened here? I thought that did happen a little bit, actually. Yeah, it, it did feel like a few of the Arsenal games under Emery where when Arsenal were in a kind of position where they can just play their natural game, they actually don't really have a natural game. But in fairness, Liverpool improved. Um, the introduction... Of Diaz certainly made a big difference. I thought Fabinho was excellent in the first 20 minutes of the second half. Just got such intelligence, such control on the ball. And I think, to be fair to Liverpool, I think they were excellent in in terms of almost just putting the first half behind them 
and not playing like they were shell-shocked and essentially just going back to their natural game, which is being positive on the ball. There's so many forward runs in the second half from Alexander-Arnold, from Robertson, even from uh, Fabinho, who I think two or three times made that run that eventually brought the goal for him. And I think that's quite brave to do when you've been kind of caught out on the break, you've been exposed at the back to just actually have the bravery to make lots of forward runs. I know it sounds like a simple thing, but I think that was the really the main thing that, that got them back in the tie. Yeah, the ability in football to park a bad 45 minutes or to park a bad 20 minutes is absolutely critical. And all of the best teams can just stay calm, regroup, work out what they need to do and change it and change it for the better. And, and, and that's what they did. Dealing with disappointment is huge in football. Manchester City dealt with the disappointment of conceding that equaliser terribly. They dealt with it. They dealt with the disappointment of going to extra time awfully. Liverpool were the opposite and they, they were able to park it. And, and I think a lot of it comes down to, some of it at least, comes down to Klopp being calm at half-time. By all accounts, he was really cool, didn't didn't raise his voice, was, was, was yeah, just the message was... We will win this game, settle down, play your normal game. And, and Villarreal will run out of puff, basically. And, that, and that's kind of what they did. They, 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 yeah, fit, fitness got to them. Speaking of running out, what, what about Geronimo Rullio, eh? I mean, if you, Emery deserves credit for a fantastic first half, but his goalkeeping choice, um, it's not as if this was completely out of character from the Villarreal goalkeeper. No, for all Liverpool's... Um you know, calm and control. I think they were very much helped by the first keeper to make two errors leans for goal in a Champions League game since Loris, Loris Carius uh, oh, back in the 2018 final. Mm. Would you need commentary on, on these ones? Uh, I think I'd have worked that out <laughs> with the old eyes, yeah. Um, just on Adrian's point about Klopp being calm at half-time, there's no point smashing teacups uh, in the home of ceramics because they're just very easily replaced. So um, <laughs> he, de- he definitely did the right thing there. <laughs> it's the first time that Liverpool points out Ollie Hopkins have been two goals down and not lost in the Champions League since do you know when? Istanbul yeah absolutely alright they're through to their third Champions League final in the last five years do you feel a bit bad for Unai Emery starting really aside? no I, I mean I think he's emerged from this season with a lot of credit for various reasons I mean it's worth remembering that there was one point where he looked nailed on to get the Newcastle job and people thought he was going to go. So to stay on with Villarreal and take them to Champions League semi-final, having won the Europa League last year. No, I mean, he's... The one thing I kind of don't really understand is people saying, oh, should he have been given more time at Arsenal? I mean, it's a bit like David Moyes at Manchester United. Didn't do a good job. He was sacked because he wasn't doing a good job. Fair play to him for bouncing back. Um, and yeah, he's, he's more than recovered his reputation. So no, I don't really feel sorry for him. Okay, remarkable stat, by the way, from Villarreal's time in the in this year's tournament, from the equaliser from Dani Parejo against Juve in the last sixteen, they scored with eight shots on target in a row, including the two that they had against Liverpool. Incredible! That's that's remarkable efficiency. All right, uh, you you suggested that maybe teams had, had seen a way to put pressure on Man City, Adrian, and I said, well, mm. I'm not sure if there was a any kind of recipe there, but what Villarreal did to Liverpool in the first half, is that something that, say, Spurs might look at for this weekend? Um, I think it was as much about Liverpool being a little bit too too relaxed as well ahead of kickoff. I don't think they readied themselves for the storm that Villarreal threw at them. And, and, and sometimes you can get caught up in that and it takes a while to to recover. And 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 you just got to hope the damage isn't to, isn't too much. I, I I don't I don't think so. I think Spurs will go there with their own plan. I think that Spurs at Liverpool is stylistically a, a game that's okay for Tottenham and and for Conte because Liverpool need the win. Clearly, they'll play their usual way. Robertson and and Trent Alexander Arnold will fly forward. And and where are the spaces going to be? They're going to be in behind them, down the sides of the centre halves for for Son Heung-min or or Kulusevski to to race away. And I think they'll get chances. I do in the game. It, I, I wonder what it will do because Matip has been so good this season alongside Van Dijk, but Kanate is a little bit quicker. 
And I just wonder whether that will come into his thinking. Obviously, Canate's a lucky player for Liverpool as well in regards to, to the winning record. But um, yeah, Son up against Liverpool, I think is a really interesting battleground. And, and yeah, I, a, lot of, a lot of gooners out there are almost banking on this being a Spurs blank, but I don't see it that way. I really? think that they can score at Anfield and, and make it competitive. Do you think this could be where the title race gets decided if it hasn't already been? Just could one be. point between them. See Liverpool dropping points here? Uh, yeah, I can. Yeah, I can see it being a score draw. I, I, I think, I, I think if history tells you that Spurs will, you know, don't really ever win at Anfield, but they did win at City. They did the double over Manchester City, and and they're the sort of they're the sort of team that 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 needs opponents to come at them. We know that, and 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 Liverpool will do that. No question. And Spurs, if they're efficient and if they're clinical, and they have been among the most clinical teams in the Premier League this season, then, then they've got a chance. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous from an Arsenal point of view about the game. Mm. Spurs, of course, two points behind Arsenal in the race for fourth place. I mean, this feels like a sort of director's supercut of 2017-18 because we've got a Champions League final of, of uh, Liverpool against Real Madrid and then 2018-19 where... You know, City and mm. Liverpool are this flawless title race. I mean, yeah, it, it seems likely they'll probably both win again this weekend. But yeah, I, I, I mean, the reverse fixture at Spurs was 2-2, wasn't it? And that was one of the best games of the season. Obviously, Andy Robertson with a goal and assist and a red card, which is a good, good little combo. But yeah, I mean, I think Spurs do have the potential to upset Liverpool both stylistically and temperamentally. Is that a word? Probably not. Um... In this game, so yeah, it's um, and it's at the strange Saturday night time. So who mm. knows how players will react to uh, to such a time slot? Although they did alright with the night time slot on Tuesday, eventually. All right, very good. Uh, that was what happened in the Champions League midweek. Uh, we haven't had the Thursday night games yet. So next up, let's move on to the rest of the Premier League weekend. It's the Paddy Power Football Supporter Support Line. We're talking to Liverpool fan Dave about their upcoming game with Spurs. Yeah, like Liverpool, I think Spurs can do their own quadruple. A Spurs quadruple? Yeah, the fourth consecutive year out of the Champions League. It hasn't been rewarding lately for Spurs, but if you want rewards, then try a completely free £5 bet builder on Liverpool v Spurs this weekend. Paddy Power. Free match online bet builder bet only. Min two plus legs. Max one free £5 bet per customer. Must have previously deposited to avail. Seven day free bet expiry. Eligibility restrictions and T's and C's apply. 18 plus begamblerware.org. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Billing, left-footed, it's a cheeky one, square, and smashed in! Kiefer Moore! More, more, more! Welcome back, Bournemouth. Good table, 1-0. Kiefer Moore with a late goal against Nottingham Forest. And we were talking about a considerable amount on Monday. The Cherries are now back in the Premier League after a couple of seasons away. Forest go into the playoffs. Duncan Alexander tweeting, a tricky night for former European champions against sides who have employed Dan Juma. Mm. Uh, anyway, disappointment for Matt Davis-Adams and Nick Miller. You can get Matt's reaction. I'm sure it'll be fair and equanimous. Uh, in the Totally Football League show, that's our... Now, I think, is it? Uh, they'll also be talking Wait, about later, le- later on today, says Adrian. Are you in that one, Adrian? Yeah. Recording it straight after this. So, yeah. Are you? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Come on, give us, give us the good stuff now. Come on. <laughs> League One playoffs. You'll be previewing those. They get underway Thursday night uh, with, oh, Crikey, Wickham Wanderers taking on MK Dons. Mm. Duncan. Yes. It's... um. It's sold out, which uh-huh. is exciting. Um, <laughs> and yes, yeah, so, God, so. that is a small club. If you're getting excited about that, <laughs> all right. Hey, when King's saying last year, um, 
Yeah, no, it's, it's going to be... We, Wickham have got a very bad record against uh, the team from Milton Keynes. So, yeah, it's uh, it's quite daunting. But, you know, we'll see mm. how it goes. Okay. That's the first leg on Friday, then. You've got, I believe, also a sellout, excitingly, for Sunderland. Uh, they've got 45,000 who are turning up for their, their clash with Sheffield Wednesday. The reason I mentioned the sellout... Mm-hmm. which amused Michael so much, is because Sunderland have sold out. I'm pretty sure Sheffield Wednesday will sell out. Wickham mm-hmm. have sold out. Um, but Wickham have only been given 2,000 tickets for the second leg on Sunday. And Milton Keynes, even though their stadium will probably have about, I don't know, 10,000 empty seats, um, they claim it's because they're preparing the ground for a My Chemical Romance concert in a few weeks. But... Um, <laughs> For me, I would simply sell more tickets and use up the space. But there we go. Have you got yourself a ticket for the sold-out clash this evening, Duncan? I will be going to that one, yes, and I will be checking that every seat is filled and on a big spreadsheet. So, yeah. Right. (laughs) Don't leave (laughs) it. You want some of the good stuff, Duncan, right? This is the ultimate Mm. clash in styles. I think we know that. MK Don's... Well, I think it is. I think it is. Right. You're, well, I don't know if you'll, you'll know this stat, but but I've just seen it. 10 plus pass sequences, okay? So 10 or more passes in a row. MK Dons lead the way in League One with 531 sequences. Wickham Wanderers, 24 over the course of yes. the season. So that is quite but the difference in uh, half style. of those. Half of those have come in the last 12 games. So there has been a slight stylistic shift. So... But yeah, you're right. It is um, it is two different approaches to life and football coming together. Mm. What's Gareth Ainsworth's approach? What's his philosophy? Um, just rock music mainly. He was singing at a, <laughs> singing at a concert in near in Wickham or near Wickham at the weekend. So I'm sure that will have relaxed him ahead of ahead of a big match. Yeah, he sings right. in a band. He, yeah. he sings in a band. Yeah, yeah. Do we have any of his music, producer Charlie? I've just checked and My Chemical Romance at Milton Keynes is actually not sold out which isn't a surprise because the tickets are £74 which is quite expensive in my view Mm, It's very expensive Mm. Mm. Alright then Quick shout for next Tuesday at the Glee Club when we'll be going live that's next week now with Duncan and Michael, and says here, Julian Lawrence, although, Duncan, I know you've got one or two things to say about his inclusion. Well, he tried to put me off in the third-place playoff, didn't work, um, so I think we'll, we'll iron it out pre-gig, pre, uh, and then it should be fine for really? the Russian public. Yeah. yeah, I think it'll be okay. But Maybe we'll know. just keep that simmering tension stoked. Mm. Maybe we'll throw in yeah, an maybe. extra round. <laughs> I have live mind games I don't know anyway glee.co.uk is where you can see uh, Julianne and Duncan and Michael and me and producer Charlie on Tuesday evening I think it's 7.30 grand hey Premier League round 36 for some 35 I mean teams have played different amounts but anyway here's what they've got this weekend Liverpool as we mentioned they have the Saturday night game at home to Spurs Man City play a day later Sunday 4.30 against Newcastle Chelsea who are in third and in the midst of yet more ownership turmoil more on that shortly host Wolves on Saturday afternoon Arsenal in fourth place three behind Chelsea and two above Spurs face a Leeds Sunday lunchtime Man United are at Brighton Saturday tea time and down the bottom Everton visit Leicester on Sunday, Burnley host Villa and Watford are at Palace Saturday at three. A match that could see Roy relegated against his former club. Also this weekend, Brentford Saints, Norwich West Ham. What What's the most significant game in that lot, do you think? Is it Everton's visit to the King Power? Possibly. Everton fresh from beating Chelsea. Two points from safety with a game in hand, but with the worst record on the road in Christendom. Yeah, probably. I think the fact that Arsenal, Leeds and Leicester, Everton are happening at the same time is key, I think, because obviously, you know, if if Arsenal beat uh, Leeds as expected and Everton can get something at Leicester, then Leeds are very much the team spiralling down to the Championship, which I I don't know. I don't know what everyone else 
thinks, but it does feel like they are the the team at the moment that seem kind of destined to to go down. Oof, big shout. Michael, you were watching Leeds last weekend in their defeat to Man City. Did they look like a team destined yeah. for the drop? No, not really. I mean, I thought, obviously lost 4-0, but I thought for long periods they battled quite well, caused City a few problems. It was their first defeat in six the atmosphere was brilliant at Ellen, Ellen Road. Jesse Marsh was very positive afterwards about the performance. I'm not sure. I, I really don't know who will go down. Um, I mean, I think an interesting game is is Burnley against Aston Villa because Aston, I'm not sure the mm. sides on 40 points are definitely safe. It could be a really crazy well, season. We've also got Brentford Southampton as well. So. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that, there's a few interesting games this weekend. Yeah, Brentford, for example, they are, like Southampton, eight points above the drop zone. But uh, Burnley, Leeds and Everton all have games in hand on Brentford. And Brentford's final two games are against Everton and Leeds. Yikes. So, I mean, they should be all right, but football's a fickle beast. Yeah. Well, we haven't seen a team go down with 40 or more points um, since West Ham in the 2000s. So, it, you know, obviously people used to say, well, you've got to get to 40 points. Well, generally it's sort of 35, 36 should keep you up. But, yeah, it's, if Leeds, Everton, Burnley keep winning, then Brentford, Southampton, Villa, maybe even Palace on 41 um, are, still in, are still in danger. So, I mean, that would be a, that would be a twist, wouldn't it? Patrick Vieira's excellent first season ending in... <laughs> in a surprise relegation. Well, they've got a positive goal difference at the moment. So, I mean, if they go down with something like those kind of points, yeah. That's the issue with Leeds, isn't it? It's they're, on, they're on minus 34, which is a lot worse than, than Burnley on minus 15. So, Sorry, Leeds' yeah, um, goal difference is minus 34? Yeah, Leeds have let in more goals than, than any other club this season. So. That's a lot. Crikey. OK, you mentioned can Everton keep Winning. I mean, the, the issue is their 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 form on the road. What is it? Seven straight away defeats under Frank Lampard. Worst records, I think, anywhere in football apart from Grittefurt in the at the bottom end of the the Bundesliga. And Leicester, though, might be a good time to play them. They're in Rome Thursday evening. They haven't won any of their last four league meetings with Everton. Uh, the most recent of which came a long time ago, uh, a whole fortnight back when they were seconds away from victory, actually, at Goodison Park, and then Richarlison got a stoppage time equaliser. Hmm. Yeah. If, you, if you think back about that game, though, Richarlison sh- should have scored about four. He missed a number of sort of open goals in the game, and Leicester really struggled to handle him. He's, he's in good form. I think he's the one shining light, along with, obviously, Anthony Gordon, that they can look to in the final weeks to try and make something happen. He's, he's in the goals. He's got a really good record against Leicester, actually. I think he scored five in seven appearances against them. And and I was looking at uh, at the recent run of form. Basically, he's he's responsible for half of their uh, XG, Richarlison. said. He's, he's the one getting on the end of all the good chances. So yeah, I don't want to put too much pressure on the lad ahead of the weekend, mm. but you know their survival prospects you know, may may depend quite heavily on his ability to convert chances at the King Power and in the remaining games. So, yeah, this is... Um, they have to get something, I think, from this game at Leicester because Leicester are fallible. You know, they're a flawed side, defensively not great, often concede goals. This is an opportunity, I think, given the circumstance with the Thursday night game, for them to, to get a point, at least. Mm. They are two points below Burnley whose turf moor is now officially a tough place to go again. Duncan, you spent a lot of time rowing back on the public's perception of it being a tricky away well, fixture, only for it then to become a tricky away fixture again. They've won three straight matches there now. Well, and also if there is one club in, in football where turf moor is a tough place to go, it's Aston Villa. They've won just one of their last 26 away games against Burnley. Wow. So Villa fans, fine. Turf Moor right. is a tough place to go. OK. <laughs> uh, this is the first meeting between these sides this season. It's May. Uh, they will have the return in, uh, I think, is it, is it next week? Is it in a week's time? Very soon, anyway, because the season's about to wrap up. Adrian, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I did, I did a bit of analysis um, for the Premier League on, on Burnley uh, under Mike Jackson. 
this week. Um, they haven't lost at home to anyone 12th or below. So that gives them hope, I think, in in this particular match. But but the main thread of my piece was looking at what's changed. I think we can all see they're a bit more attack-minded, playing with more freedom. But some of the numbers are really interesting. Like ball carries, for instance, okay? It, it looks with, with my eyes as if they're saying, well, give the ball to the wingers and let them do something, you know, let them run at defenders or central midfielders. Instead of hoiking the ball over the over the top for a striker to chase, take a bit of responsibility. Run with it if you have to. They were averaging 65 ball carries a game under Dice. That's now 90 ball carries a game under Mike Jackson. Quite striking. Expected goals has gone up from 1.1 to 2 per game. Shots up from 10.2 to 14. They're having more of the ball. Um, lots more touches inside the opposition box. So, yeah, they're a different proposition uh, right now compared to what they were earlier on in the season. I think it's just because Jackson has liberated the players. He said, look, we've still got this framework. We've still got the the, the sort of basis of, of what you're used to, but I just want you to take a bit more responsibility and enjoy your football. And mm. it's well, it's worked until this point. More of a thriller under Michael Jackson, etc. They're not bad anymore, Duncan. Yeah. They're facing a Villa side. Can they beat it? When Deitch got sacked, yeah, when Deitch got sacked, pretty much unanimously everyone said it was a terrible decision. And right. it hasn't proved that well. I think I'm trying to think of yeah. the... Uh, no, you know, when, sure. I remember when Nigel Adkins left Southampton, everyone had a similar reaction and po- mm. when Pochettino came in and then... Sometimes it, sometimes it just works. Yeah, that bit of the decision worked. But people, to be fair to them, although there was a certain kind of nostalgia for the rasping tones of Sean Dyche, uh, the, the other kind of issue was the way that the whole takeover had happened and the fact that it had lumped the club with this massive debt of, what, 100 million, uh, that essentially a leverage takeover, they bought the club by borrowing against the club. And this yeah. week, as it happens, we, we hear that part of the terms of the, uh, of the loan deal is that if they do go down... They will be liable for early repayment on figures seem to vary. I've seen 65 million mentioned uh, as what needs early repayment as opposed to in 2025, which, to be fair, not that far away. But it, it, it just underlines why, crikey, getting three points in this game could be huge. But all that is a fairly separate thing from the decision to change yeah. the manager, surely. Oh, yeah. That's it's fair. not like Deitch was saying you can't pass laterally or carry the ball because there's a £65 million pound No, set. no, you're absolutely Maybe right. Maybe he did. Maybe that's why they had to get rid. They were like, this, sure, this is this is avant-garde at best. No, no, you're right. But there were, there were, I'm sure, people who said, who are these people? They've laden the club with debt and they've... So, no, you're right. That, that part of the decision-making may well prove to have been huge for Burnley. The other part absolutely well, I mean looks disastrous it is mad that it's still allowed to buy a football club by basically borrowing against that football club I mean you know Manchester United being the most famous example but it, mm. it's yeah how is that even allowed really beats me Duncan well if they do go down James then mm-hmm. then I mean massive trouble aren't they because they'd have to strip back the asset the, the, the best playing assets they will you know the wage bill will come down and that, that power that Premier League clubs have with the parachute payments and whatnot will be sort of watered down quite heavily, wouldn't it? So, um, yeah, it's a really significant few weeks in the club's Absolutely. history, you'd, you'd think, now. This weekend could, meanwhile, seal the relegation of Watford, who are at Crystal Palace, who, as Duncan points out, aren't safe entirely yet. And Hodgson has confirmed he won't be at Watford next season, whatever uh, expects this to be his... His last job. Only Liverpool and Man City have conceded fewer home goals than Palace this season. There you go. Now, uh, we'll touch on one or two other things, including this dramatic news about the Chelsea takeover next. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which is excellent news for Everton fans when they make their Lampardian transition from serious to funny to serious once again. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Maximum free bet is £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. Online exclusives and T's and C's apply. 5th of May on this day in 1956 was the... I would suggest the most famous football injury ever. When Bert Troutman played on for Man City with a broken neck. But what's happened? Troutman's down. He's injured. Teammates help Troutman to his feet. He tells the trainer he's all right, but the crowd can see his neck is hurting badly. It was the FA Cup final between City and Birmingham City. He was injured when making a save and played on with a broken neck. And if you go to the Football Museum in Vienna, a lovely spot, you can see the neck brace he wore while pulling off this remarkable example of old-school, proper football man-ness. He does say, I didn't know I'd broken my neck. I would have left the game immediately had I done so. But (laughs) Don't ruin it. I remember remember being a kid, and my my dad used to mention Bert Troutman a lot, and it was always in this sort of, you know, why... Be brave like Bert Troutman, but yeah, he wasn't brave. He was just medically un. Well, he was brave. I mean, I imagine it hurt. He was a former prisoner of war, yeah. wasn't he, Bert Troutman? He'd been interned and then elected to stay on. Hmm. That um, that film that came out about him a few years ago is very good. I really enjoyed oh, was that. It? I don't know if you mm. saw it. What? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, mm. Do you know what it was called, Michael? Also, I quite. Also, no, I can't remember, but I'm sure Google will work it out for you but he's, hmm. he also had a very interesting managerial career he managed Liberia and Pakistan and Burma I think like r- r- I mean fascinating guy everyone remembers the the breaking the neck thing but I think what happened before and after that is yeah equally fascinating one of the most interesting figures in the history of English football I'd say wow The Keeper is a British German biographical film directed uh, by Marcus H. Rosenmüller and starring uh, German actor David Cross, <laughs> uniquely, as uh, the footballer, it says here. I'm guessing the footballer. Yeah, the footballer, Bert Troutman. There you go. Right. Check that out. Excellent. Uh, oh, also on this day, the lowest ever league crowd for Arsenal. Adrian, do you know how much this was? Adrian's debut, wasn't it? <laughs> there were a few empty seats there on my debut I remember that I've got a picture showing it but I think that was because it was taken in injury time when most people Absolutely. left but the um, yeah was it 4,000 or something I can't remember yeah 4,500 this is 5th of May 1966 not a big year for football in this country and uh, <laughs> Arsenal were taking on Leeds same fixture how about that as this weekend uh, at Highbury, and just 4,454 people made the effort to turn up for that. All right. I remember a few games where there were zero people in attendance, to be fair, which is That's less fair. than 4,000. Yeah, certainly You is. like non-league football, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, Arsenal, as we mentioned, are three points behind Chelsea, so third place potentially within their reach. Uh, Chelsea as well at the moment, have other things to worry about. The sale of the club, which had seemed ready to be signed off on, has hit an 11th hour, or perhaps I should say 89 and a half minute hitch, uh, with the word that Roman Abramovich has changed his mind about a pretty key promise to write off 1.6 billion in debt that the club has with him. How serious a threat is this to Chelsea? amid reports that it could even cost them their place in the league. What? Let's find out with Matt Slater. Matt, thank you so much for uh, taking time out from literally writing about the Chelsea Mm. takeover. First of all, 
how uh, how serious a hitch is this uh, word about the Abramovich loan? Well, I mean, it, it is serious, but I'm, I'm a little bit confused by some of the reporting on this over the last week or so, because this hitch has been known about for some time. I mean, the, the whole thing is serious. You know, turn the clock back two and a half months. This is serious, Chelsea fans. Wake up. Um, and it's un- it's incredibly complicated and unprecedented. All those cliches that we keep hearing and reading about are true. Football has never had a takeover like this before. It's never had a club effectively become a frozen asset of a sanctioned individual at a time when there's a war raging and that individual's country is becoming an exile from, well, you know, kind of Western politics, but, but football. This hasn't happened before. And this club is not just any club. It's the world and European champions, uh, you know, massive club, but equally a club that has attained this status because of the lavish generosity of this individual, Roman Abramovich, and owes him a lot of money. So this is so weird, so odd, so unusual. The timeline is has to be accelerated. We all know, we've all talked about it, you know, the, the licence they're operating under, you know, the natural deadlines of football, season ending, transfer window opening, contracts coming up. It's all weird. So, yes, this is a hitch, but it's been a hitch from the beginning. And mm. the people that have been part of the process, the people who have been made, making the bids, have been aware of this from the, from, the, from the outset. When it was all reported last week, none of them pulled out. We have a preferred bidder now in Todd Bowley's group. Um, it hasn't pulled out. The clock is ticking. Todd Bowley has time to do this deal. And I would argue... He still can and still should. But yes, none of this is easy and he has got to move pretty quick. OK, although that does sound comforting compared to the alarming reports in the last couple of days that this might effectively scupper the burly move or, or, or one of the other bids uh, and even see Chelsea without an owner and thus out, out of the league uh, come the new season was one particularly alarmist uh, headline that I saw. Mm. Uh, what you're saying is you would expect, despite all these headlines, things to proceed at a fairly accelerated rate. And whilst it's all very unprecedented, there is at least still at least one extremely rich person ready to stand in for the previous very rich person yeah. as, the, as, the, as the kind of safeguarder of this club. Yes, I, I would, but with the massive caveat that this could all go wrong because of all those things I said in my first bit. You know? Right. This could all fall over tomorrow. It could. So I guess those headlines are onto something. But, like I said, we had four very, very, you know, in terms of sports entrepreneurs and, and, and sort of, you know, US finance with, with, you know, with the UK representation in there as well. We had four star-studded uh, bidders that went to three. They're still there. None of them have flounced off. Yeah, there's some sour grapes and there's been some briefing going on, but none of them have flounced off and they'd all love the opportunity to get this deal done. And one has preferred bidder status and is, you know, quietly, diligently, as fast as it can, getting its ducks in a row. But as you say, a fourth person has come back, you know, in the in the shape of Sir Jim Radcliffe, one of Britain's richest men. You know, I'm writing a piece about him at the moment, what a complicated guy he is, but what a fascinating and interesting guy he is. He's desperate to buy this club. He gave a 25-minute interview to the BBC last night. You know, he is he's on the record. I want to buy this club. So, yes, there are problems. Yes, there are obstacles. Yes, this is incredibly complicated. And if it goes wrong, bad things are going to happen to Chelsea. Matt, can I ask, it's, it's all well and good spending this gargantuan amount of money buying the club but what's going to be left over for running it and investing in in the team moving forwards because this Chelsea squad kind of needs a, a little bit of a rebuild is Todd Burley well equipped to to spend as lavishly as Roman Abramovich has been spending down the years or not given that they, they might he might have to pay more than he anticipated yeah I mean it's a great question and it's something that they all have to be mindful of 
And it's something that Abramovich and these people need to be mindful of as well. You know, do not try and gouge these people too much because they, they're, they're different to him. They have different motivations to him. They are buying the club for different reasons. The, the American private equity-led wave of investment that's coming into British football and will continue just is, is, is coming at this because they, they, they like football. They, they, you know, they've, they've, got, they've been watching from afar and they're thinking this is the, truly the global game and there's upside here. And yes, football clubs are now an asset class. This is the language they use. But you know, don't be too turned off by that. We might not like the language, but winning is important. Top Oli runs the LA Dodgers. Winning is important to him. He's just bought the Lakers or bought a stake of the Lakers. Steve Paliuka, who was one of the other bidders, runs the Boston Celtics. The Ricketts family run the Cubs. They all know that winning matters. Having a great stadium, having a compelling offer. These are, the, again, you know, this language you don't like, you know, this whole sort of customer thing. But winning is, is, is part of that. Fenway mm. Sports Group. They're all looking at Fenway Sports Group. Ah, that's how you do it. You bring US kind of discipline around finance. You bring our kind of know-how, our ability to sell stuff, to make a big noise. You've got the kind of global game there already. How can we kind of engage those, you know, that global fan base? How can we monetize them? How can we actually get some money out of people who don't live within an hour's drive of the stadium? You know, that's what they're buying. And, the, and the, one of the reasons they love Chelsea is that someone has already pumped billions into them. They're piggybacking on off off you know off of Abramovich's nineteen year reign. Mm. Yes, there are issues there. The stadium's a massive issue, massive. But someone has already made Chelsea famous. Excellent. All right. Well, that's a more positive spin. Thank you, Matt. Just with obvious caveats, as you mentioned at the start. I look forward to reading more on the Athletic as uh, this deal moves forward or, or not. But uh, many many thanks for joining us today. You are welcome. There you go. Chelsea taking on Wolves. One win in their last four, Chelsea, by the way, but uh, Wolves similarly adrift, and that's Saturday at three o'clock. A little bit later on Saturday, you've got Man United visiting Brighton. Do you remember what happened last season when they went to the Amex? Goal after the final whistle. Madness. Rare occurrence. Mm. Maybe there'll be one before the kickoff this time. Mix it up. You could, to be fair, it's that kind of week. You couldn't rule it out. Brentford taking on Saints <laughs> in a key relegation clash. Norwich West Ham. Yeah, um, you know, lots of things that could happen in all these fixtures. We'll we'll talk about them on Monday when they've actually been and happened. Although, I know Adrian, you want to have another word on Arsenal and their game with Leeds, or two words, and those words are Eddie and Ketia. Yeah, only a brief word. I just, I just think it's worth mentioning. It's, I just think he's been absolutely exceptional across these three three matches. Um, this is a guy that didn't start all season. Mikel Arteta did not trust him to have more than five minutes at the end of matches, and suddenly he was thrust into the starting eleven to start against Chelsea, Manchester United, and West Ham, and he 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 scored twice at Chelsea, and and I thought he was outstanding. As, a, as the leader of the line in the games at United and West Ham, the way he held the ball up, his movement, the runs he made in behind as well, particularly against West Ham. You can see a player developing there. Now, it's probably too late for Arsenal. I think that I, I think they'll, they'll move on from him and he'll move on from them. He probably does need a fresh start. But it's just, it's crazy really that it's come to this point in the season where everything matters so much to Arsenal Every game's a cup final. The, the the prospect of Champions League football is there within reach and they are relying on a guy that won't be there next season in all likelihood and someone that wasn't trusted until three games ago to start matches. It's 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 amazing. But I will credit him for, for the way he's, he's approached that that task because he has looked better than Lacazette and and yeah, th- this will be another interesting test for him against Leeds and it would not surprise me if he he was the hero here that, that that scored a key goal. Leeds meantime chasing not only three points in the relegation battle but also the Premier League yellow card record Duncan. <laughs> yeah we we all thought they'd do it last weekend against City but only got one so it will happen 
and it will help so the, how many, they need two to break it or one to break it now no one to break it now they've equaled Sunderland's record they've equaled the record so right yeah okay all right Excellent. And also happening this weekend, alongside those exciting Premier League fixtures, is also the final day of the WSL season. Has it set up nicely, Michael Cox? Yeah, Chelsea in pole position. They're playing at home to Manchester United. If they win, then they win the title for the third time in a row. Uh, The interesting thing is Manchester United are still playing for something. They want to try and jump up above Manchester City to get the third and final Champions League spot. Um, so yeah, Chelsea I think would be quite strong favourites. I suppose the interesting thing is that it would be their third title in a row, but it would be the first one they've really been able to celebrate properly. Uh, hmm. Two years ago, the season didn't finish. It was done on points per game. There was no celebration. And a year ago, it was behind closed doors, so they had a bit of a, a muted celebration, I suppose. So hmm. if they do win it, I think it will be almost uh, three celebrations in one. Crikey, if they don't win it, it'll be Arsenal's title. They're only one point behind Chelsea. Uh, all the games will be kicking off at noon on Sunday. Arsenal, who took the title race to the final day with a victory Wednesday night against Spurs. Ooh, Arsenal are going to be at West Ham, Adrian. Yeah, you'd, you'd think that they would do their part and, and, and get the three points against West Ham. They've, they've finished the season really strongly. They had they had a wobble, which allowed Chelsea to, to just nip in ahead of them. Because Arsenal have led... Led this title race for for the bulk of the campaign. They just had a little bit of a, a sticky patch, and and it it looks like it's going to cost them. But I think Jonas Sedevel in his first season as gaffer there, first season in English football, has done done really really well. My my only fear is that because Arsenal have got some really quality individuals, is that that one or two might get picked off because yeah, as we've seen in the Champions League, that there was some. There are some very, very impressive teams across the continent and I think they, they might be eyeing up one or two of the Arsenal players. Mm-hmm. All right, well, uh, a delicate set of fixtures awaiting and they all get underway noon on Sunday. Adrian, you're heading along to Arsenal's game with Leeds. Best of luck with that. Duncan, you've got Wickham Wanderers against MK Dons this evening. Our thoughts with you ahead of that huge match. Michael, where are you heading to this weekend? Uh, I'm at Arsenal-Leeds. Are yeah. you? Okay. So nice I'm pleased, pleased Asian has made me excited about that game. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so there's at least two people going, just 4,552 more. Than uh, yeah. I'm also going to Sheffield United v Fulham in mm. the Championship on Saturday, 12.30, so that they get centre stage, the Championship. Obviously, the top two's done and dusted, but... The playoff battle is really intriguing. I think there there are four clubs battling for two spots on the final day, one of which is Sheffield United, but they've got Fulham, who are pretty good, as Luton will testify. So, um, yeah, it should be an interesting one at Bramwell Lane. Crikey. Well, if that's your bag, you can hear Adrian saying lots more things like that in the Totally Football League show, which will be up, if not yet, then very, very shortly. Adrian, off you go and record that. Many, many thanks for today. Thanks to you as well, Duncan and Michael Cox. Always a delight to have you with us, producer Charlie, and above all, you, listener. Have yourself a great weekend and do join us again on Monday when we have a chat about all of that. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on The Athletic app, and discover bonus content by following The Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.